Welcome to the Conscious Mental Health Podcast for mental health professionals who are always learning. The Conscious Mental Health Podcast is a series of diverse educational resources for mental health professionals sponsored by the Academy of Integrative Mental Health. The Academy expands knowledge to professionals in the mental health community and beyond using a conscious, experiential, and evidence-based format. Our mission is to deliver comprehensive health and wellness to all by empowering personal and professional growth and confidence. We believe continuing education is an essential aspect of mental health care that is ever evolving and changing, just like the communities we serve. The CMH podcast is part of our efforts to increase access to modern experiential knowledge across all stages of a clinician's career. We share engaging conversations with skilled therapists, multidisciplinary experts, and advocates committed to thinking outside the box using an integrative approach. Our episodes are similar to our training style in that you receive research-informed content and guided practices, news updates, and other segments to support you in your personal and clinical practice. This podcast is intended to provide information as a resource and is not a substitute for mental health treatment, medical advice, or professional training. And the statements and views shared by the guest are their own. Hello, Jennifer Owens here, Director of the Academy of Integrative Mental Health. And I know that this isn't the most fun or sexy topic, but it's always a good idea to have a quick refresher on duty to warn and duty protect law and ethics. Today, I'm going to share the cases that provide legal precedents for the laws and standards we practice under today, and then discuss how to balance liability, safety, and practicing therapy in the way you were trained and that makes sense to you. As a seasoned clinical social worker, I guess I can call myself seasoned now, I've been trained to balance informed consent, client self-autonomy, protecting confidential information with the duty to warn. While researching for our our upcoming training on suicide assessment using a compassionate, relational, and strength-based lens, the difficulty of maintaining that balance became clear, much more clear. We carry the task of providing therapeutic services under national laws, state laws, agency policies, state licensure policies, and our professional ethical standards, not to mention your own values, which do come into play in our professional work, whether you know it or not. Ethical dilemmas involve multiple threats, such as a person's life and involvement with a system that is equally dangerous for some people, like the police or hospitalization. Needless to say, a refresher on duty to warn laws can be a helpful tool when facing an ethical dilemma, a client who is at high risk for suicidal behavior, or a client who might harm someone else. Also, using an intersectional lens and digesting all of the layers of these dilemmas and practicing in a way that feels safe for you and your clients. Duty to warn and protect laws are complicated, ambiguous, and vary state to state. Where did these laws come from? like most laws from a seminal legal case. The Tarasoff versus Regents of University of California case in 1974 was the catalyst of liability on all mental health professionals to protect a victim from violent acts. Protecting potential victims from harm and protecting clients from self-harm have become ethical obligations in the mental health field. 
Tatiana Tarasov was a student at the University of California, Berkeley. She and her fellow student, Prasenjith Podar, briefly shared a romantic interaction on New Year's Eve in 1968. After that, Tarasov was unresponsive to Podar's advances and dated other people, which confused and upset Prasenjith, who became depressed and began stalking Tatiana. He went to see Dr. Lawrence Moore, a psychologist employed at the university's medical center. In his seventh and final therapy session, Podar told Dr. Moore that he intended to kill Tatiana. Dr. Moore diagnosed him with an acute paranoid schizophrenic reaction and notified campus police, suggesting that Padar be placed under observation in a psychiatric hospital. Police detained Padar, but released him after he promised to stay away from Tarasov. And Dr. Moore's supervisor ordered Moore not to request any further detention of Padar. Neither Dr. Moore nor the doctors who examined Podar warned Tarasov or her family about the threats made against her. Podar did not return to therapy. He instead began stalking Tarasov again, befriending and moving in with her brother. On October 27, 1969, he attacked and murdered Tatiana. Although the trial court dismissed the case on the grounds that a doctor's duty was their, to their client rather than any third party, it was appealed. In 1974, the Supreme Court ruled that mental health professionals have a duty to warn. However, a strong dissent from Justice Clark argued that a duty to warn compromised the confidentiality of psychotherapy and that clients might not seek treatment if they knew that their stories of their life might be shared with third parties. A more recent case highlights duty to warn. In 2001, Gene Colello told his father that he was going to kill Keith Ewing, who was dating his ex-girlfriend. Colello's father told his son's therapist, Dr. David Goldstein, about the threat that and was told to take Colello to the hospital. Colello was admitted voluntarily and evaluated, but was released the next day. The day after his release, he shot and killed Ewing and then died by suicide. Ewing's parents sued both Goldstein and the hospital for failing to warn Ewing or the police about Colello's threat. Goldstein claimed that he could not be held liable because Colello had never told him he planned to harm Ewing. The case was appealed and the court decided that there were no, there was no difference between a disclosure by a person in therapy and one made on his or her behalf by an immediate family member. They found that as long as the evaluating social worker and Goldstein had actually believed or predicted Colello posed a serious risk of grange injury, grave injury to an identifiable person, they had a duty to warn that person. Furthermore, the court determined that the standard use of expert testimony to determine whether or not a psychotherapist was liable for failure to warn was not necessary, as a jury could rely on common knowledge to determine the risk Colello posed. So that's interesting. They realized, they decided that a jury of lay people could rely on common knowledge to determine a risk rather than a professional, which is interesting because they're saying that the professional should be able to determine the risk. Okay. A common misconception following Tarasov is that therapists have a duty to warn potential victims of threats against them, when in fact, their duty is not just to warn, but also to protect. 
The Tarasoff ruling was amended in 2012 to reflect this. The Tarasoff decision impacts how mental health professionals practice. It imposes an ethical burden upon mental health professionals to report threats. However, individual states determine the requirements. If a client makes a credible threat, state laws vary on how the provider can satisfy the duty to warn. The options might include warning the victim or victims, warning relatives, reporting to law enforcement, acting to protect the intended victim, for example, involuntary or voluntary hospitalization of the client. While the duty to warn refers specifically to notifying a potential third party of imminent danger or harm, the duty to protect has broader implications. With duty to protect, the therapist still has the legal obligation to protect a third party or the client from danger, but can do so through various options such as hospitalization, more rigorous outpatient therapy, or other methods, methods of intervention that still enable the therapist to maintain client confidentiality. States either have a mandatory or permissive duty to warn, and four states have no duty to warn at all. In Georgia, however, there is a duty to protect when a hospitalized patient makes threats and is released negligently. In states where duty to warn is mandated, professionals are required by the state law to warn third party of imminent danger, and those professionals are protected by the law from legal action taken by the clients whose confidentiality is breached. Permissive duty to warn means that mental health professionals are permitted but not required by the state law to warn the third party of imminent danger. Permissive gives mental health professionals some protection as long as they can cite the appropriate reasons for breaching confidentiality. However, if they choose not to report or warn, they would not be held liable by state law. And some states have no duty to warn and or protect in situations as outlined in the Tarasoff case. Those states are Maine, North Carolina, North Dakota, and Nevada. According to a Brian Cannon Law, experts in healthcare litigation, North Carolina and Maine, through case law or statute, have affirmatively rejected the Tarasoff duties. North Dakota and Nevada have no jurisprudence on the duty. However, as mental health professionals in those states, it is far more comforting knowing your legislature and or courts have outwardly rejected the duty as opposed to have never having addressed whether the duty exists. Duty to warn and protect also includes protecting clients from harm from themselves. When a therapist is aware that their client is at risk of completing suicide, courts have generally held that they have a duty to take reasonable or appropriate steps to prevent the client's suicide. However, the definition of what may be considered reasonable depends on the facts and circumstances of the case. There is no list of actions or interventions that can be applied uniformly to all clients with suicidal ideation or plans in all circumstances. The case Bella versus Greenson provides an example of what is generally expected of a therapist when working with a client facing suicide. In this case, the parents of an adolescent girl who died by suicide brought a lawsuit against their daughter's former psychiatrist, wherein they alleged that he was negligent because he failed to provide reasonable care to prevent her suicide. The parents also contended that Dr. Greenson was negligent because he failed to inform them that she was engaging in high-risk behavior while she was in treatment. 
In its decision, the Court of Appeals agreed that Dr. Greenson had a duty to exercise reasonable care in his treatment of the client, meaning that he was expected to take appropriate preventative measures concerning her risk of suicide. But the court did not agree with the plaintiff's contention that Dr. Greenson had a specific duty to disclose his client's confidential information to her parents. So what did the court mean when it used the words appropriate, uh, appropriate preventative measures? And why did the court disagree with the plaintiff's argument that Dr. Greenson was negligent because he didn't tell them about their daughter's high-risk behavior? To answer such questions, it may be helpful to briefly review the primary legal issues at the heart of a negligence or malpractice lawsuit against a mental health professional. According to the California Associate of Marriage and Family Therapists legal team, a therapist is not legally required to be correct in their assessment of a client's risk for suicide. Therapists are no better at predicting the future than anyone else. In fact, predicting violent behavior or suicide is extremely difficult, and there are no current measures or assessments that do so with any degree of 100% accuracy. Thus, the fact that suicide occurs does not prove there was a breach in the standard of care. There is an expectation, however, that the therapist will take reasonable steps to obtain information about the client that helps determine the risk of suicide. We will discuss this in depth in our upcoming on-demand CEU training on suicide assessment and treatment that I mentioned earlier. According to the ACA Code of Ethics, gray areas arise around other areas of potential danger to such as eating disorders, self-harm, substance misuse, reckless and or dangerous behaviors, and even cult membership and criminal activity. Also, circumstances around communicable and life-threatening diseases. This is when having a good knowledge of your state's laws and your licensure board's requirements, as well as your professional code of ethics, comes in very handy. I know this can be like boring to review or confusing, but it is essentially is it essential when making difficult decisions regarding your client's safety and confidentiality central to the therapeutic relationship. There has been controversy around the effectiveness and ethics of breaking confidentiality and involuntary hospitalization. One of the critics, Donald Bursoff of Drexel University and former president of the American Psychological Association, argued that the Tarasoff decision is, quote, bad law, bad social science, and bad social policy. As Bursoff pointed out, one of the major problems with the Tarasoff decision is that it requires therapists to decide how serious the threat is being made. It is, is the risk more or less than 50%? And how does a therapist decide that? Breaching confidentiality is a serious matter and can severely undermine clients' trust in their therapist, which could prevent clients from sharing information or even continuing therapy, which is a protective factor for most clients. While Bursoff does not suggest that potentially violent patients should be allowed to endanger the public, he does argue that breaching confidentiality should only be done as a last resort. Even in cases where the threat of violence is imminent, therapists can encourage clients to seek immediate hospitalization as a voluntary patient or otherwise recommend that they see a psychiatrist for medication. Simply telling a potential client that threats are taken seriously and that the therapist is willing to make that extra effort to diffuse the risk of violence or danger to self or others can make a difference. When a breach of confidentiality is necessary, asking the client's permission first can also be essential to preserving the therapeutic relationship. 
Also, there is some research and discussion around the effectiveness of forced or involuntary hospitalization, which is one of the options presented for mental health professionals in regards to reasonable measures to protect life. A 2019 study suggests that the common practice of forced hospitalization for mental health concerns may do more harm than good. People who felt they were coerced into being hospitalized against their will were more likely to attempt suicide after being released from the hospital. This was true even after controlling for other factors that might influence suicidality. This research was conducted at the University of California, San Francisco, and published in the Journal of the American Association of Suicidology. Previous research has found similar results. A 2017 article in JAMA Psychiatry found that risk of suicide was 100 times greater than average immediately after being released from a hospital, and a 2016 report suggested that adverse experiences associated with hospitalization were responsible for a high number of post-discharge suicide attempts. Involuntary, involuntary hospitalization was associated with an increased risk of suicide, both during the hospitalization itself and afterward. I was unable to find specific research, but there's also an increasing weighing of risk when involving the police in a client situation. Police are most often the first responders in potentially life-threatening situations, and while many police units are trained in crisis management and in some cities are accompanied by a crisis care team that includes social workers, there can still be a threat to some clients who have had trauma associated with the police or fear for their personal safety due to the long history of police brutality and violence in communities of color. Duty to warn and protect is a source of extreme stress for most mental health professionals and the gray areas and ambiguity, along with all of the specific and unique factors are, that are being weighed when facing a potentially dangerous or threatening situation with a client. As a supervisor, trainer, and clinician, I recommend staying informed on your state laws. I cannot um, enhance that enough. And having a basic framework to address ethical dilemmas and a trusted supervisor or colleague to consult with. We also will discuss this in our training. While we as mental health professionals understand that most of the work we do in a therapeutic relationship with ethical dilemmas in particular are almost always in the gray area, we are practicing within a structure that is both ambiguous and also black and white. At some point, our gray area decisions can be determined as right or wrong if litigation or some other structure becomes involved. So there are some essential guidelines to minimize risk of malpractice or to help you feel more confident in providing services in a way that feels ethical to you and centers the client's overall well-being um, have been developed as a result of the proliferation of suicide malpractice lawsuits in outpatient care settings. So here's some of the key recommendations that should not be overlooked. First of all, conduct an assessment of suicide risk with every client. Now, most of us do this, and we discuss in our training how to assess in a narrative, strength-based approach that develops rapport and trust. As suicidal behavior cannot be predicted, no client can be determined to be free of risk without a thorough assessment. So um, 
really think about the way that you typically do your assessments in the first session or on the intake and like take a look at it, evaluate it. Do you feel good about these assessments? Do you think you're getting good information? Do you think you're setting up the stage for openness and trust and safety with your clients? We know that therapists are terrified of um, something happening to their clients. And we talk a lot about this in our suicide assessment and treatment training that's upcoming because it seems to get in the way of providing the actual therapy that we know how to do. So we're going to kind of talk about how to balance this. But one of the most important things is feeling really comfortable and confident with your assessment at the very beginning and just setting that stage. So like letting clients know what your laws are and how you practice within those laws. And so the client can feel safe and make decisions based on what's best for them. So anyway, let's go back to um, some of the recommendations to minimize risk. The next one, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, is to maintain comprehensive records. A lack of documentation can damage a practitioner's defense as there will be no evidence of the standard of care they maintained with respect to the client's treatment. Now, every mental health professional knows that documentation is one of the lamest parts of the job. So uh, develop tools to make it easier on yourself. I personally only use handwritten notes during the session. I save them electronically and, well, I write them in my iPad. Um, and then have a key of the shorthand I use for clarity's sake, should the records be subpoenaed. In fact, when I was an intern, my very first practicum, like as a little baby therapist, not even graduated yet, my records were subpoenaed in a murder case. And I learned very quickly how to write notes. My rule of thumb is that I write notes like a judge will be reading each one. I put very little information in them. And then I also have evolved over my years of practice um, written kind of um, statements about the way that I practice. Uh, and so I'm really trying to like, quote, prove my standards of care, um, even though they might be a little different than what most traditional ways of therapy or mental health are provided. Um, but I just make sure that I document and I prove it with evidence. So like if you are a little less likely to recommend involuntary hospitalization, use the research that I mentioned today in this podcast as part of your evidence for that. And then what is your justification for whatever treatment or whatever plan that you decided on? So you can really use evidence, you can use um, legal precedent, you can use all of these things to help you make your decisions. Okay, uh, so next... It's really important to seek records from the client's prior treatment experiences, if at all possible. Proper assessment of suicide or homicide risk must include consideration of prior suicidal or homicidal behavior. Relying on a client's personal report of suicide history is insufficient when it has been established that a prior treatment existed. So know that that could come up later. Suicide risk is increased when there is family history. Thus, proper evaluation of a client's risk for suicide should include an assessment of family history, which most biopsychosocials, most intake assessments do that. Um, but I always like to include family members that are not blood-related, you know, quote, blood-related, because um, growing up or living with people uh, with a history also could affect your suicide risk. Establish a relevant DSM diagnosis. There is a differential risk of suicide associated with many diagnoses. 
A comprehensive assessment of psychiatric disorders will shed light on the degree of suicide risk related to other psychosocial characteristics the client presents, according to research and current standards of care. Now, for mental health professionals like myself that do not use or make a diagnosis, it is recommended to have clear documentation of why you do not make a diagnosis and when you would refer out if a diagnosis is necessary for the client's treatment in regards to safety risk. And I also talk about things like this in our training because I personally do not use diagnosis in my treatment. Um, right now, I am only private pay and I am privileged to be in that place. It is important to me and the way that I practice. And also there are legal risks if I were to make diagnosis and take insurance because of the way that I practice, which is more a coaching style. But that being said, I have it all in writing. Why do I do this? What are my justifications? And what are my plans to use if the way that I practice in the way that we're working isn't helpful for a client? All right. Well, that about sums up this little brief refresher on duty to warn. And uh, what has been your experience? What do you notice? Do you um, do anything differently than we what we recommend or what's been recommended uh, by the standards of care? Uh, we would love to hear.